What's going on, chuckleheads? You're listening to Go Chuck Yourself. In this episode, Aaron and I are going to recap and analyze season two, episode 21 of Chuck. That is Chuck versus the Colonel. Uh, Colonel, kind of an interesting word. You you wouldn't think that it's pronounced the way that it is. In fact, it's spelt nothing like the way that it's pronounced. I, quite frankly, am not sure how it survived this long as a word without being changed to something that's more phonetic. Uh, anyways, if you want to email us at gochuckyourselfpodcast at gmail.com, that is the best way to reach us. And also the best way to potentially get yourself on air. If you have a Chuck anecdote, question, anything like that that you potentially want on the air, maybe you don't want it on the air, that's fine. It can just be between, you know, the three of us, you, me, and Aaron. That's totally great. If you want to follow us on Twitter at gochuckpodcast, you can also tweet at us. That, of course, is a little bit more uh, public. I guess I'm just trying to help figure out, like, you know, where, how do you want to communicate with us? Do you want it to be public? Do you want it to be private? I'm just giving you options. That's all I'm doing. You can also like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure, if you get a chance, write a review. We uh, keep on top of that and we like reading them. And it really means a lot. And also, constructive criticism is always great. Just like how I, earlier in this introduction, was constructively criticizing the word kernel. I think kernel could do a little bit better. That's all I'm saying. If you get nothing else from this episode of Go Chuck Yourself, just remember one thing. I think the word kernel could be improved. That's all I'm saying. Here we go. Back at it again. It's Go Chuck Yourself. How the hell are you? My name is Chris Gillespie. I am but one of two co-hosts here on this episode of Go Chuck Yourself. I am joined, as always, by the uh, wonderful and talented Aaron Arada, everyone. It's like I don't even have to say anything. You don't? I will take it from here. <laughs> I like this episode of Chuck because blah, 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 blah. You sound just like me. That was a great impression. It's almost like uh, it was Halloween this weekend and we messed up the timing of the last episode. I don't want to talk about it. We are <laughs> discussing season two, episode 21 of Chuck, Chuck versus the Colonel. Uh, I am going to pronounce it colonel at some point. I can tell you um, that is just how I read that word and it will happen. So I'm sorry in advance. That's OK. I appreciate it. Erin also has a head cold, uh, so she may sound sniffly. But maybe she won't sound sniffly. We'll find out together. But we'll uh, keep Erin in your thoughts and prayers and hope that she has a speedy reco- uh, recovery from her from her head cold. That's really nice. Thank You're you. Welcome. Um, so this episode takes place kind of all over the place, but they spend a lot of time in an abandoned drive-in movie theater lot. Yeah, they and do. I thought this was apropos because we haven't recorded in a little while, so it's been a few weeks since you and I have spoke about this, but we were both doing things related to movies. So I thought I would take a moment to just not, I just wanted to let people know what we were up to. Cause I think what you were doing was very exciting and you should be proud of Thank yourself. You. And we should share that with our listeners. Cause they would be proud of you as well. I think, or maybe they wouldn't, I don't know. I'm proud of you. And I hope other people are as well. Thank you very much. So where did you go, Aaron? So I was, um, <laughs> I was attending the Austin Film Festival. Chris is rolling his eyes, although he asked me to say this. She's um, also, to be fair, I'm, she's also wearing an Austin Film Festival t-shirt, which is... 
I am. I really wanted to show it off. You should have seen me. I bought this and then I wore it to the airport on my way home so that everyone on my flight would know where I was. But I think it's it's important to emphasize, and I think the key part of this is that you were at the film festival because you, well, you can explain it. Oh, right. Yes. yes. So I was a um, second rounder for a drama feature that I wrote. Um, it's called Big Blue Sky. You don't, you, you can know that. Thank you. Thank you for your clapping. It was very exciting. Um, I got to go rub elbows, not literally, maybe literally, I don't know. I might have bumped into some people um, with, you know, industry folks, other writers. It was really fun. I saw the first hour of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a very nice French film. Um, but an hour in, the subtitles stopped working, so they uh, shut, shut down the screening. So I saw the first hour. It's really good. It's coming out in December. Anybody can go see that. Um, I met Ashley Miller, who is the writer of Thor, and I had to stop myself from giving him a hug for giving me Loki, but um, we all know that that's... I wanted to give him a hug for that. That was a great gift that you bestowed upon Thor, me. Thor? What, what do you mean, Thor? The movie Thor? The first really? Thor. Yeah. You yes. met him? He was very, very cool. He was in a... Um, we had, like, a round table where we met with... It was kind of like speed dating, but with, like, really famous people. Mm-hmm. Um, so... He sat down. He was one of the three people that we met. I also met the writer of the Tolkien movie that came out uh, relatively recently. Um, they were both really cool guys. So that was fun. Yeah. I attended a panel about podcasting. So you you may be able to tell that I'm just like so much wiser this episode and I know so much more about this medium. I'm very intimidated by <laughs> all of Aaron's wisdom. And she just seems to be the uh, the master podcaster at this point. Yes, that is, um, that's, and then there were a lot of events with open bars, so that was nice as well. I hope to be back at this film festival or just back in Austin in general at some point, but it was really, really great, and thank you for giving me uh, time to talk about it, but unless you have questions, I'll cut myself off there. One question. The guy that wrote Thor, did he also write one of the Fantastic Four movies? Um, I can look. He wrote X-Men First Class. He did? Oh, he was so cool. I'm looking at his picture right now. He's a cool dude. He is a producer on Black Sales. He wrote Fringe, X-Men First Class, Thor. I'll cut this out then. I thought he also wrote one of the Fantastic Four movies, but that's fine. You can't cut this out. You want to know why? Because he wrote... You want to know what he wrote? The Fantastic Four movie? No, he wrote Agent Cody Banks. He did? Yeah! You met the writer of Agent Cody Banks? Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't like I knew some of his credits. I was really excited to talk to him, but I did not know this was one of them. Now I feel like I need to go back. I need to build a time machine and talk to him about Agent Cody Banks. Frankie Muniz! <laughs> okay, well you heard this here live. This is a shocking revelation. <laughs> Aaron goes to Austin and meets the writer of Agent Cody Banks, our That's our favorite spy. It's all it's all work for this podcast. My whole life just revolves around that's this. That's right. Give, give, give. That's that's all we do. Are you interested in talking about your film experience? My film experience you brought it up. was a lot less glamorous than Aaron's. I was standing in a field for <laughs> approximately, was there uh, almost, I would say, 24 hours spent standing in a field. So that's not that different from what you do day to day. I... You're often spending 24 hours in fields. I uh, <laughs> I was working as a script supervisor on a uh, short to medium length film 
that my friends wrote that I've been serving as a producer on. So during the actual production, I was script supervising. And in case you don't know what that means, I basically was just reading the script a lot as the actors were saying it. And I was writing down what we were capturing so that the editor would know what exactly was in each take and which audio file goes with each video footage and which lines were said. And I had one of those uh, multicolor pens that you can click through to the different colors. Oh, cool. and was, uh-huh. I always hated those pens, but this weekend just gave me a new perspective on those pens because they, they made it so much easier. I never thought about like professional people using them for practical purposes. I just thought it was for like elementary school kids to like feel cool. So that's really interesting. And now I also appreciate them a little me bit too. better. And I, in addition to appreciating these pens, I appreciate anyone, you know, who works on in production and on film sets and actors. Um, I, it's, everyone has different challenges. And, you know, when you watch a finished project, like an episode of Chuck, you think it just kind of comes together easily, but I would imagine that there's difficulties that you don't see, and there's people behind the scenes who are who are working hard and they don't get any credit. So, uh, thank you to the producers and crew of Chuck. Thank you, thank you to the assistants of those people as well. Thank you to the PAs. Thank you to um, everyone. Thank you to thank you for listening. And that's our episode. See you next week. And I can't think of a better way to thank these people than by talking about their work in depth, specifically episode 21. What we didn't like about it. What we didn't like. Uh, season two, episode 21, the penultimate episode, if you will, Chuck versus the Colonel. Aaron, I would be delighted if you uh, if you wanted to take it away. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, it has been a little while since we recorded. It has also been, or it had been a little while since I saw an episode of Chuck, which I was surprised by because once we start the episode, I remembered how exciting things were when we, when we left off. Chuck and Sarah, um, were on the run because Beckman had ordered Chuck be taken underground. Mm-hmm. The Intersect Project was a failure. So Chuck and Sarah went AWOL. Um, the episode begins pretty much uh, very close to where it left off. We begin the show back in Barstow. I'm realizing now that this is also where Chuck's father lived or thereabouts in his trailer and also where the secure Fulcrum base where they're keeping it is. I thought that was kind of interesting that it would be the same place because it's not like most viewers know California well enough to be like, ah, that is a reasonable distance from LA for them to have a secure base like whatever I thought it was weird that Chuck's dad lived there and also that's where Fulcrum was like if he was if he was trying to keep his enemies close and like keep an eye on them that kind of makes sense but if he was like trying to evade them I don't know why he would live in the same town pretty weird um Chuck and Sarah have escaped LA and arrived in an abandoned drive-in movie theater looking for Blackrock I was hoping they would find Jughead Jones living in this drive-in like he does in Riverdale, but all they find is a bunch of trash, so I guess not really that different. Chuck laments the fact that they'll have to go back to L.A. and start the search all over again, but Sarah reminds him that they are literally on the run, so, like, they can't go back. I don't... Chuck... I guess Chuck's not used to that, um, which is valid. Except for the time that he went on the run exactly like this with Jill about 12 episodes earlier. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Chuck's... Like, we have an excuse, because we watched that episode a long time ago, but in Chuck's life, it wasn't really that long ago, you should remember. <laughs> we cut to Chuck's dad, watching Chuck and Sarah from a camera hidden in one of the piles of trash. 
Chevy Chase, a.k.a. Ted Rourke, walks in and tells Stephen that if he doesn't complete the intersect in the next two days, he can't guarantee Chuck's safety. Stephen tries to hit Rourke, but he's chained to the floor by his ankle in front of his computers, so it's sort of an empty threat. A less empty threat comes from Beckman, who, continuing her streak of being, like, really super harsh, says she no longer cares about Chuck's safety and wants Casey to hunt Chuck and Sarah down and bring them back dead or alive. They don't, like... They don't have another intersect at this point. Like, she's just like, they disobeyed us. They deserve to die. I Yeah, I, she's, you know, all business. It's her job to uh, to make the hard decisions. But I was like, wow, you really have no <laughs> sympathy for Sarah no, Chuck at no all. No empathy. Uh, she she uh, does not give a shit in this no, she case. Does not. It is her. Sarah does give a shit mm-hmm. because that is why she is rescuing Chuck. Casey says he understands his orders, but Beckman wants to sweeten the deal, I guess, because she says once Casey has caught Chuck and Sarah, he will have his pick of assignments. Also, he's been promoted to Colonel. Woo! Yay! Very exciting. Much like me uh, receiving a second roundership at the Austin Film Festival, Casey has also received an honor. Yeah, we get it. You went to Austin Film Festival. (laughs) Awesome. Casey sneaks into Chuck's room using the Morgan door, which he apparently hadn't done in the past 24-ish hours of Chuck being missing. This is the first he thinks to, like, sneak into Chuck's room and look for clues. As he's rummaging through Chuck's things, Devin and Ellie walk in and ask what he's doing. Fair question. He makes an excuse about Chuck not showing up to work, and Ellie tells him that Chuck is fine, but she's irritated. As it turns out, it's finally time for their wedding, and they're none too happy that Chuck happened to go out of town the weekend of. As Casey thanks them and goes back out the window, Devin says, babe, we've got to get a lock for that window. Babach. I think they uh, they can't go to the large mart, though. <laughs> back home, Casey puts a trace on the number that Chuck called Ellie from. Considering that most shows, including this one in the last episode, usually have, like, I don't know how phone tracing works, but usually it's like, you got to keep them on the phone so that you can trace mm-hmm. their number. In this case, like... He just happened to know that Chuck called Ellie at a certain time, like, and he just, his computer can figure out the location. I don't know. Why can't they just do that every time? Uh, If any of our listeners know the answer to that, please let us know. Chuck and Sarah check into a motel. Chuck apologizes for there only being one bed in the room. Meanwhile, we see that Vincent is outside watching them. He has a call with Rourke, who tells Vincent that he needs Chuck and Sarah alive for the moment as leverage, but Vincent can kill them in whatever despicable ways he wishes once Stephen finishes the intercept. It's both very exciting to see Vincent and also like never that exciting because I always get like, woo, Vincent's yeah. back. Bet things are going to get good. And then he doesn't really do anything. I'm like, OK, see you later, Vincent. I'm just excited that they like have a character that like shows up more than once because he's honestly been in it more than Chuck's dad or Chevy Chase. Like Vincent is a consistent figure this it's season. True, he is. I do appreciate that that yeah. they didn't just uh, throw him to the to the curb, if you will. Yeah. Back in the hotel room, the show is up to its old tricks. I don't know if you noticed this, but I sighed really loudly because Sarah comes out of the shower in her underwear, and it's not enough for us to see that with her eyes or see Chuck's predictable odd reaction. We kind of zoom in and pan up and around her legs and underwear and butt. And it was it was just so great. I just had a great time during that scene. Did you notice that? Or is that just what your eyes are doing automatically when Sarah is on screen? Wow. <laughs> I, I noticed it insofar as it was the focus of the shot. They, they wanted well, us I to see it, so I saw it. <laughs> It was a weird way of filming that. Like, it felt like the camera was ogling her, and I didn't like it. Like, it felt unnecessary, because it wasn't like, 
Like you can have her walk on screen in her underwear, and that's like yeah, that's fine. But like the camera just like follow like tracked her butt basically. Like it's like she's wearing I, panties. That was unnecessary. You see that? Look at her. She's she's just wearing she's the wearing underwear. Yeah. And I was like, oh, she's got okay. Him. That's my uh, rant on that for now. Um, Sarah climbs into bed with Chuck, who is under the covers, but he immediately says he'll sleep on the floor. Sarah tells him not to worry about it. He asks her why she's giving up everything she's worked for to go on the run with him, and she says that after everything he's done for his country, he deserves to find his father and get the intersect out of his head. Chuck is very contemplative about all of this. Back in LA, Casey's computer or whatever figures out Chuck's location. At precisely this moment, Chuck's picture drops down from the fireplace, and this time, Casey shoots it without hesitation. Mm. Chuck versus the Colonel, indeed. Uh, we go back to the Bymore, where Emmett is now the store manager. You forgot about this, like I did. We're reminded that Morgan betrayed Big Mike and got him demoted back to green shirt status. Emma asked Morgan to be his ass man, assistant manager, but they say ass man the whole time, just in case it's not clear. Uh, Morgan refuses to betray his coworkers like that, even when Emmett reminds Morgan that Big Mike has given Morgan's mother a UTI. Why does he know that? Never addressed. Morgan says, I have Chuck. That's all I need. That sounds like uh, a healthy relationship to me. <laughs> Back at the hotel, Chuck and Sarah wake up cuddling. It's a sweet moment without any aggressive or demeaning camera angles. They just wake up and they're holding hands and they roll over to face each other and then they begin making out. Which, like, it was pretty hot. Did you think it was pretty hot? Uh, can I read my notes for this section? <laughs> yeah, please. Okay. Um, so, as you said, Sarah and Chuck cuddle and hold hands in bed. So then I write, I feel uncomfortable watching this. I don't think we're supposed to be here. <laughs> my next note is, oh, God, now they're making out. And then my next note is, uh, are they about to fuck? And then my next note is, Chuck is looking for a condom. Morgan stole his <laughs> condom. And then my next note is, this must have gone so completely over my head as a teenager. <laughs> I don't remember any of this, nor do I think that I would have understood anything that was going on. Well, uh, now we have some insight into teenage Chris's uh, life and experiences. But I, I think, um, like, the point that I'm trying to make with this is that, like, I don't, I'm happy that they were, I'm happy that the characters were doing it because it means that the characters are getting something that they both want. However, uh-huh. as a viewer of the show, as a fan of the show, and also as a host of this show, <laughs> I, the effect that I had was kind of like I was watching two friends about to start having sex. And I was like, I don't want to see this. This is gross. I don't. You guys should get a room. Like two of two of your friends. Yeah. Or like, like two, two two people who are no friends. no like two people that I would know like a couple that I would know oh, okay like okay. I'm objectively happy that they're doing that for them I just want no part mm-hmm. of that which was so that's really interesting because I feel like in past episodes where they have kissed you and I both have been pretty excited yes I guess so that's interesting <laughs> um I remember th- this episode and the next episode I have a lot of memories of watching them like i don't know why these these just like come more uh seem more recent in my memory of watching chuck so i do remember the scene and i remember being very excited when it happened for me personally it's been like a little bit um it's been a little bit since i saw the last episode it's this episode this season has been spread out over several weeks for me i haven't just been like marathoning everything um which the first time i watched this i did marathon it so i feel like I was a lot more excited the first time I watched this and like I feel like I 
because there's gaps between when I watch this episode, I feel like I know Chuck and Sarah are like into each other, but like how much varies between each week. So I was a little, I was happy to see them kissing. Um, I thought, as I said, I thought this was a pretty like sweet and potentially hot scene, but I also was surprised that it was happening. Um, cause I feel like we've gotten like little hints that like Sarah likes Chuck and everything. And we've had some like moments with her, like in the last episode when she was upset about like his relationship with Jill and like stuff like that. But this just seemed very sudden. But in the context of the season, like, of course, the whole season has been building up to this. It's the penultimate episode. Of course, they're going to kiss now. So I don't know. But yes, as you said, um, Chuck tells Sarah not to move and he rushes into the bathroom to find his wallet. I don't know why it was in there, but he goes in there and he um, is looking for a condom. And uh, there's a note there that is from Morgan that says, I owe you one condom. I was happy here that um, Chuck is promoting safe sex, but I was confused here because I was like, Morgan isn't having sex. And then I remembered Morgan is having sex. That's a huge plot um, of this this season, the last season. That's something that is really going on all the time. And I just read it from my memory. You have to remember that Morgan is a sexually active being. I don't want to remember that. Back in the Bymore, Morgan, not a sexually active being, walks past a row of TV screens showing Italian scenery. Jeff and Lester let him into a home theater room where Big Mac is eating a donut and what even I know is a reference to The Godfather, I hope, because if not, then it's going to sound really stupid, but it definitely is. Morgan asks Big Mike how he can ever make up, make up for his betrayal. Big Mike tells Morgan to never go against the family again. Morgan agrees and even calls Big Mike stepfather, which I just got that, that, uh, that's supposed to be like Godfather. Oh, okay. Right? I, yeah, I didn't pick up on that yeah, either. Okay. All right. Well, good. We can both be dumb together. Just then, Emmett calls Big Mike to plunge a clogged toilet. So apparently Emmett is torturing Big Mike. And apparently he's doing this to convince Morgan to accept the assistant managership. Morgan sees Big Mike taking the plunger into the bathroom. And he reluctantly agrees to Emmett's offer if he promises to make this stop. Back at the hotel, Chuck leaves Sarah behind in his quest for a condom. Before he gets very far, Casey grabs Chuck and throws him against a wall. I will take this time to say that I like Chuck's look here. He has like a red t-shirt and a white shirt with three-quarter sleeves under it. I thought it was pretty nice. Uh, Casey points a gun at Chuck's nose for some reason and forces him back into the hotel room. He asks what will happen to Sarah, but the point becomes moot when Sarah isn't in bed where Chuck left her. The shower is running, though, so Casey walks into the bathroom, but she isn't in the running shower. She's just outside the open window, and she whacks the hell out of Casey with, I don't know what, but something. I don't know if you picked up on what it was. Did she just kick him? I thought she hit him with, like, a pole oh, okay. or something, but I don't know where the pole came from. Either way, she incapacitates him. Chuck and Sarah handcuff Casey to a radiator, then run back to their car. Chuck happens to flash on another car in the parking lot, and he realizes that Vincent is there with them. Chuck says they can't leave Casey behind because he'll be tortured. Sarah says they should leave anyway, but Chuck is a good person, so he insists. Meanwhile, Vincent calls Rourke and says we have a problem, and moments later, Volcom agents swarm the place. Guess they were having a light work day back at the secret underground bunker. Let's <laughs> get there really fast. Sarah sneaks back into the hotel room to rescue Casey, but he's not there. In fact, he's ripped the whole radiator out of the wall. While Sarah stands aghast, Casey opens the door to Chuck's car and makes himself at home with the radiator still attached to his arm. Chuck tells him that Sarah is about to be captured by Fulcrum, but while they're bantering, Sarah actually is captured by Fulcrum, and Chuck and Casey watch her being led away by the goons. 
Casey urges Chuck to drive away, but again, Chuck is a good person, so he reverses into the Fulcrum agents who scatter and begin shooting. The distraction gives Sarah and Casey time to regain their footing, and they join the brawl. Also, Vincent just stands there and gets hit. Is this the last we see of him? Um, I was, I don't, is he later in this episode? I think he's later in the episode. I don't think I have it written down, but he like, he kind of just stands there and gets hit by the car as it's reversing. <laughs> so he's not really part of the fight. He just, like, as you said, he's just kind of like, it's exciting when he shows up because I'm like, ah, familiar face. But then he doesn't really do anything. He's definitely in, he's later in the episode. Okay, good. Good to know. Um, so he doesn't die here. We don't see this man brutally murdered, but he does get hit by a car. <laughs> this is a non-fatal uh, car accident. Much like the time I was hit by a car and did not die. We get it, Aaron. You've been hit by a car and you've been to Austin <laughs> Film Festival. Good for you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Eventually, Casey and Sarah beat up all the bad guys, but the fight is not over because they pick up guns and point them at each other. Chuck is alarmed and reminds them that they're all a team, but Sarah and Casey do not back down. One of the Fulcrum guys happens to get up and Sarah and Casey both shoot him. Pretty sure killing him. Casey realizes that Sarah is out of ammo, so he tells her to put her gun down, I guess, so she can't, like, throw it at him, but, like, we established she's out of ammo, so I don't know why she has to put it down, but she does. Uh, the point is, Sarah and Chuck seem to have lost. Back in Black Rock, which is apparently a bomb shelter, one of the Fulcrum henchmen lights up a giant cigar, celebrating uh, a light work day, uh, I guess. Steven, who is sitting nearby with something that definitely isn't the Tesseract, asks the henchman to take his cigar outside. Instead of blowing smoke directly into Steven's face, which I feel like most Pokemon people would do, the guard actually listens. There's great service in this bomb shelter. I During this scene, Steven establishes, like, we're in a bomb shelter. And I thought maybe the reason that he said that was because, like, he had some connection where Chuck would overhear where he was and know that... Stephen was actually underground under the drive-in, but apparently he's just establishing for us, the audience, that they're in a bomb shelter. It was it was just kind of weird because like he knows they're in a bomb shelter, and the guys know he's in they're in a bomb shelter. So I don't know why he has to say we're in a bomb shelter. I don't need to tell you that we're in a bomb shelter. Yeah, that, it, it kind of felt like. But the that. characters don't even. I mean, this is not so much a spoiler, but there are bombs that go off later at this location, but there are no characters. That's true, and they in, don't go into the bomb yeah. shelter. They should seek shelter yeah. there. So Stephen is tracking Chuck's car, which is being driven by Casey, with Chuck and Sarah handcuffed in the back seat. Stephen also apparently has control of the drive-in's digital marquee for some reason, because he makes it light up with a thing that says Midnight Screening of Tron. So when Chuck drives past it, he'll see it. Chuck does see the sign, and he freaks out, knowing his dad must be somewhere nearby. He pleads with Casey to stop, but Casey says, I don't care. I was hoping maybe with my, like, sick voice, I would sound a little bit more like Casey. I don't care. Uh, yeah, that was a kind of a, a heart, not a heartbreaking moment, but definitely a sad moment to see the, the, uh, our gang of three friends broken up in such a definitive way. Yes. At the Bymore, Devin enters and asks Jeff and Lester if they've seen Chuck, because he says that a lot of weird things are happening, uh, like Casey breaking into Chuck's room. Jeff and Lester are not surprised that Casey did this, as they've noticed that Casey is, quote, obsessed with Chuck. Lester describes Casey as, quote, a classic perv. No offense to Jeff. Devin is concerned by this accusation, as anyone would be, and Jeff invites him to check out Casey's locker. Rummaging through Casey's employee locker, Jeff finds a hidden compartment which holds Casey's secret Chuck diary, as well as all of Casey's master keys, his duct tape, and his chloroform. Jeff says that as a fellow stalker, he's impressed by all of this. 
Devin is very concerned at this point, and Jeff, after asking if Devin minds if he, quote, gets right, doses himself with the chloroform, which causes him to pass out. Um, yeah, he falls right to the ground. I like this because I feel like, obviously, Casey works at the Bymore with Jeff and Lester, but you never really see mm-hmm. how the other Bymore people feel about Casey or th- what they think of him outside of like, oh, yeah, he's kind a of a point. weird loner. But the fact that I was like, yeah, this is true. If you did not know the truth or like the reality of what's going on with Chuck and Casey, you'd be like, yeah, Casey is kind of creepy and scary and seems to be like weirdly yeah. obsessed, with, obsessed with Chuck. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I like seeing like the Buy More employees kind of like their reactions to this spot because we got a lot of like Ellie and Devin's reactions to like Chuck being late or like Morgan being having questions about their friendship or things like that. But like the Buy More employees are also like heavily involved in the plot, but we don't see them reacting a lot to like Casey being weird or Sarah showing up randomly mm. or like whatever. Like I, I like this too. It was like, yeah, it was there were some weird elements. Like, I don't know why Casey like left his keys in his locker or why there was like a spare set in there or why he like didn't just put these things in castle. But like, I liked the idea that Jeff and Lester would be curious. Or that Jeff and Lester were able to break into someone else's locker. Yeah. They had like, did you see how they did that? They had just like sawed the like wall between the lockers so that they could come in through. Cause I think one of their lockers is next to Casey's. So they just like broke the wall. Anyhow, back at Castle, Casey has uh, <laughs> learned more effectively how to lock things in, and he's locked Chuck and Sarah in a holding cell and calls Beckman. Beckman's being real snarky and says that the agents from Langley are coming to take Chuck and Ms. Walker away. Notice that she's Ooh. no longer Agent Walker. To push the knife even deeper into Sarah's back, Beckman then refers to Casey by his new title, Colonel, and tells him to enjoy his last few moments in Burbank. Yeah, my my note here is that Becky is being really catty here. She is. Upon hearing that Casey was promoted, Chuck says, oh, now I understand why you'd betray your own team. And Casey lashes out at the holding cell, saying that he didn't betray his team. Chuck and Sarah went AWOL. They betrayed him. (gasps) Chuck sarcastically apologizes, but congratulates Colonel Casey on getting the chicken franchise he's always wanted. Um, Pretty funny. Sarah reasons with Casey and asks him to protect Steven back at Black Rock, and Casey promises Chuck that if Steven is there, he will keep Steven safe and he gives Chuck his word. I that was I mean that's nice. It was nice. I think this scene, um Adam Baldwin's performance, I appreciated it. I think it showed a lot of range and emotion that Casey does not usually see. Like he's he's hurt that Sarah and Chuck went AWOL and he doesn't want to be hunting them down, but he yeah. has to. And I think you kind of you see that that agony in the performance. Yeah, I think I think he did a really good job and it was interesting to watch. Later that night, Devin uses the keys from Casey's locker to open the door to his apartment and Devin looks around. He's creeped out by all of Casey's spy gear and surveillance equipment because it just looks like uh, some guy that has all of these weird cameras and monitors. Some guy and, that's been shopping at the spy store in the Buy More Plaza. Which is again a thing that is never referenced again. <laughs> Seeing that Casey's computer monitor is set to a uh, feed of Chuck's bedroom. Devin gets really concerned and he touches the computer, which triggers a lockdown procedure to happen where steel bars drop down from the ceiling to block all possible exits. As this is happening, Casey is working on a computer at Castle and receives a video notification. He checks out the surveillance footage and sees that Devin broke into his apartment and says, I hate this whole family before running out of Castle. (laughs) 
back in the Bymore, Morgan has uh, is fully become Emmett's assistant manager, and Emmett forces him to communicate via walkie-talkie, even though they are standing mere feet from one another. Emmett tries to delegate a laborious task onto Big Mike, but Morgan reminds Emmett of their deal. So Emmett changes his mind and has Morgan do it instead. The laborious task in question is unloading self-checkout registers from a truck. Yep, pretty hard. So I did not jot that down originally because I thought that was a throwaway line, but this line, for some reason, comes back later. So stay tuned (laughs) for a moment. Apparently... The Bymore staff, or at least Jeff and Lester, are very much opposed to these self-checkout registers. Yeah, they don't want that. Why? It would mean less work for them. But are they? It is. Uh, it's unclear. But are they concerned that the like automation is making their jobs obsolete? I get that concern, but why? This seems like something that they would appreciate at the Bymore because they would have to do less. But I digress. Anyhow. Jeff and Lester, in an act of rebellion, decide to use a piece of dynamite that they stole from Casey's locker to blow up the fuse box that provides electricity to the store. So the idea is that they they say, like, oh, good good luck powering your self-checkout registers without any electricity, and they stick dynamite into yep. this box. Yep, that sounds perfectly logical to me. I don't know why you're questioning it. Back in their holding cells, Chuck and Sarah have a heart-to-heart. Chuck says that if he has to spend the rest of his life in a dark, windowless room, can think of a better person to spend it with sarah reminds chuck that that's not really how that whole situation works but chuck still suggests that they request a two-bedroom two-bath bunker and sarah says two beds and then they go in for a real honest kiss things are good did you uh did you feel weird about this kiss i did i okay. i it's just like get a room you know guys come on <laughs> well they are in uh um underground bunker in their own private cell (laughs) underground bunker and i'm just like really chuck you're trying to move in with her already you guys you you know well they've been they've been like pretty they were gonna move in together like several episodes ago this is a good insight into how i treat my friends relationships everyone uh (laughs) (laughs) i'll keep this in mind uh as they're about to kiss the dynamite in the fuse box explodes, causing all of the power to be cut off from not only the Bymore, but the entire plaza and also the surrounding neighborhood. So I'm guessing that this is a very important fuse box. Yeah, it, it seems to be. I was just like, yeah, this is um, L.A. Just lost power. The entire city. Or I guess Burbank. More importantly, the power outage causes Castle to go on backup power. But as Castle is switching power sources, the door to Chuck and Sarah's cell opens allowing them to escape. Seems like it probably shouldn't work like that, but okay. As they escape, they see the footage of Devin being locked in Casey's apartment, so they decide that they need to go there. At the buy more, power's out. Emmett has lost his shit during the power outage. Believing that they are under siege, he gives Morgan instructions to, quote, shoot to kill when the emergency generators <laughs> kick in and the power comes back on. Morgan's all calm and collected, so Emmett looks silly, and Emmett is then, you know, even more outraged when he sees Jeff and Lester high-fiving because he he knows that they caused the power outage and he threatens to fire them. Meanwhile, Devin is pacing around Casey's apartment. When Casey enters, it says, hey, Devin. Devin tries to play it cool, but Casey asks what Devin is doing in his apartment. Devin says that he, too, had a time in his life when he didn't really have much going on. He was working a dead-end job with no girl, to which Casey asks, really? And Devin says no. Devin clarifies, I, I liked... I, um... I feel like it was kind of, like, heteronormative of Devin to mention, like, because Casey clearly has an obsession with Chuck, and, like, not that the obsession has to be sexual, but, like, 
it just seemed like very weird that Devin would be like, I've also, I also know what it was like to not have a girlfriend and you should channel your energy into like that as opposed to Chuck. Like it seemed like it would have made more sense for Devin to be like, Hey, I know you have a crush on Chuck, but this isn't the way to go about it. Like, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Did you find that weird? I did not think that was weird. Okay. I don't know. I just feel like if you like, if you came across a man who had like a shrine to another man, you might think that it was like romantically yeah, motivated. Yeah, but if it's your future brother-in-law that you have lived with for upwards yeah, of two years. Yeah, but I'm not years, saying that like. You're going to be like, hey I'm man. I'm not saying that Chuck is receptive to it. No, but I, I guess if. I guess I see what you're saying, but still, like, why would he be like, hey, no, let me give you some pointers about how to actually hit on Chuck. Like, no, you don't <laughs> okay. want to, you're yeah, okay. dating a stalker anyways. You're not going to help him. Yeah, like, I'm not saying that he should help him. I just thought it was weird for him to bring up, like, we, like dating women in this, like, situation. That's fine. Uh, okay. Anyhow, Devin clarifies that his point is that stalking Chuck is wrong and not the answer to which Casey takes out his pistol. And starts to put on the silencer, and Devin freaks out. Fortunately, do you think he was going to shoot? Yeah, him? I think so. Okay. Fortunately, Whoa. Casey gets another notification that Chuck and Sarah are escaping Castle, and uh, that distracts Casey. So Devin throws a miniature bust of Ronald Reagan at Casey's head, knocking him down. Devin and Casey then start to brawl on the floor in a very, you know, never thought we'd see these two characters fighting. It was interesting. Yeah, we got we got to see Casey it. Casey says, not bad for a frat boy and makes to hit Devin when Sarah kicks Casey in the head once again, knocking him out and taking his gun. Devin is very surprised to see Sarah, but is even more surprised to see Chuck. Devin asks what is going on and Chuck says, Devin, don't freak out, which is, of course, a reference to one of Chuck's lines earlier in the series. What it, it is? Yeah, don't freak out. He says, who does he say that to? <sighs> to himself. Okay, cool. Yeah. Do you not believe me? No, I I believe you. I just didn't think that was like a uh, memorable enough phrase for someone to remember it from like earlier in the season. Well, it is. Okay, thank you. I'm sure many of our listeners also knew that. I'm just being dumb. Yeah, don't freak out. It's from the first episode. The first episode of the series? Yeah. Okay, cool. Learn something new every day. Well, everyone, I I'm very sick right now. I guess you know who the real Chuck enthusiast is here, everyone. Uh, after a brief commercial break, we return to the apartment, uh, Casey's apartment, that is, and Sarah has tied up Casey uh, to like using zip ties or something. Devin says that all of this is crazy and that they need to call the cops, but Chuck says that they can't do that, and Devin asks why not. To which Chuck responds, "I am the cops." Pretty intense. To which Sarah and Casey are both like, what the fuck, dude? At this point, you would think that Chuck would just put his foot in his mouth, but nope. All the beans just keep pouring right out of Chuck's mouth. Chuck offers Devin a very succinct summary of the series so far, as he says that he is a high-level CIA asset and Sarah and Casey are his handlers. And for the past two years, they've had to watch and protect his every move. Sarah don't give a shit and says, Chuck, no! Like, or I guess it's more like, Chuck, no! Like, Chuck's a dog that's misbehaving. <laughs> Chuck asserts that Devin can handle the news, but it is unclear if he can. Devin doesn't believe Chuck at first, but Chuck insists that it's true. And Chuck needs uh, tells Devin that he needs his help to cover this up from Ellie. Chuck says that he needs Devin to be awesome. And he asks him, can you be awesome? I, I remember this coming much, much later. Like, I knew that Devin knew about the Intersect stuff, but I thought that it, that was in, like, the fifth season. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised that it was happening now, but... I like I'm happy that that happened. I feel like 
it's it adds an interesting dynamic to have Chuck, like someone in Chuck's family, know about what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's definitely a good dynamic. Devin asks, yeah. "You're a spy, Chuck." To which Chuck quickly responds, "More or less, yeah." The reality of this is setting in for Devin, and he gets excited. He says, "It's quote awesome." End quote. Devin says that he knew Chuck wasn't a loser who worked at the Buy More, and Chuck, only slight, slightly hurt by this, gives Devin a mission to handle Ellie and cover up all of this from her. Devin accepts that mission and is excited to be helping his future brother-in-law, who is actually a cool secret agent. Chuck and Devin salute each other, and Casey's offended, saying that impersonating military <laughs> officials is a federal offense, and Chuck very flippantly says, add it to the list. So, Casey... Pretty, pretty boss. Casey's pretty pissed off by all of this. As Chuck and Sarah head for the door, he tells them not to leave because if they do, Chuck's a dead man. But Chuck says, I don't care. Which is a reference to ah. Casey earlier in the episode. That that reference, um, you calling out that reference makes a lot more sense to me. Back at the Buy More, Morgan enters the break room and Jeff and Lester make some uh, remarks about Morgan that derogatorily compare him to police officers. Morgan at... What? Uh-huh. What? 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 They say things that people say about police officers. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. It's directed towards Morgan. I thank you for not being clear with what you were saying, but I understand what you are saying now. Morgan asks uh, Jeff and Lester to behave because if they don't, Emmett will fire them. Lester then tells Morgan that Morgan needs to understand something, that no one on the planet is dumber than he is. And Jeff and Lester storm I mean, it's out. true. Yeah, it was true. It was good. At this point, Anna appears in the doorway and asks Morgan why he's taking all of this crap from Jeff and Lester. Morgan says that Emmett wants to fire everyone and that it's up to Morgan to keep them all together. Anna asks Morgan why he cares about the store. Despite being in a relationship with Morgan now or at some point in the recent past, Anna asks Morgan if he has any goals or ambitions outside of the store. (laughs) Morgan says that he does, but it's crazy and she won't understand it. Anna promises not to laugh and Morgan reveals that he wants to be Benny Hanna chef in Hawaii. Anna Anna does in fact laugh at him and Morgan walks away saying it's stupid. Anna recovers and says that it's not stupid. It's totally obtainable. Morgan acknowledges that it's not obtainable for various reasons. Emmett then summons Morgan over to the walkie-talkies, and Morgan walks away. So this was something, too, that I remembered very briefly happening, but like you were saying, I thought it happened later. Yeah. And I remember when I first saw this, I'm like, that's kind of weird. And then when I watched it this time, I was like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> it's just a, a very strange. I know it's probably designed to be strange, but I just... Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I'll I'll talk about it more later. Um, little little th- hint for later. I but... think it's just because I wouldn't want Morgan handling food. I think that's what makes yeah. me uncomfortable about it. <laughs> that's a really good point. The other thing that's kind of weird about this is just like I I understand what Anna's saying that like Morgan shouldn't like kill himself over the buy more, but also like he's ensuring that his friends have jobs in a capitalist society where they otherwise would probably like suffer. And, like, it's not crazy that Morgan would feel, like, really overwhelmed by, like, the pressures of trying to, like, prevent everyone from getting fired. So I, like, appreciate Anna being supportive of him and being, like, maybe it's time to move on. But also, like, Morgan, in this case, is not necessarily doing the wrong thing. Like, he's trying to make up for a mistake that he made. Like, and he so often is doing the wrong thing, but I feel like this isn't the wrong thing. 
Yeah, but I also appreciated that kind of I felt like that was a real moment between Anna and Morgan because I usually they're just like, yeah, I'm happy that kissy happened. kissy or like weird yeah. sexist stuff or racist stuff. But yeah, she finally got to like do yeah. something. So that was and nice. I feel like that was a a characteristic that you see like working in retail. Are there people who like are really into it and get really stressed out about it and they care about it a lot. Yeah. And then you're you have people who are like, you know, you, you don't have to like this is not designed yeah. to be a forever job kind of thing so i mm-hmm. i enjoyed that scene back in casey's apartment casey hands are still zip tied together and beckman appears on his television even though he didn't say agent carmichael she tells him that they have confirmed that fulcrum is in fact still at the black rock site but they don't have time to confront them before they escape so beckman has decided to just bomb the shit out of the area yeah as you do casey asks about chuck's father and beckman says that she hasn't come to this decision lightly but they're gonna they're gonna blow up the area presumably killing steven casey says that he gave his word to chuck that he would protect steven at all costs but beckman doesn't care and logs off more angry than ever now casey strains in attempt to break free from the zip ties the newly minted spy devin woodcomb is trying to remain calm in his and ellie's apartment when ellie walks in from the grocery store she asks him if he's heard anything from Chuck, who is supposed to be picking up uh, Devin's parents from the airport. Devin tells kind of conflicting stories of saying that he saw Chuck, but then he did see Chuck. Ellie asks if he spoke to Chuck, and Devin says that he did not, but that Chuck is fine. And then Devin like kind of starts to black out a little bit from the stress <laughs> of lying to Ellie. Yeah. Ellie tries to snap him out of the stress and says that she needs him to be awesome. And similar to Chuck, he asks if he can be awesome for her. And he's like, yeah. And then she asks him to help find uh, Chuck and Steven. Back at the Black Rock abandoned drive-in site, Sarah and Chuck pull up in a nerd herd mobile. Sarah tells Chuck to stay in the car, but Chuck insists that they are beyond the whole stay in the car thing. And he gets out of the car. Before he's even <gasps> like two feet on the ground out of the car, Casey runs up and puts a gun to Chuck's head. Sarah points her gun at Casey, and Chuck says that if Casey may as well kill him now at this point because he's he's not... I don't know why Chuck was asking to be killed. It was, I guess, just more for dramatic effect more than anything. Yeah. Casey notifies them that Beckman's airstrike is going to be coming in 20 minutes. And Chuck reminds Casey that Casey gave him his word about protecting Steven. Casey does not really appreciate this reminder because <laughs> he's like, yeah, I, I know that. That's why I'm here. And Chuck continues <laughs> to bemoan the fact that he can't trust Casey. Casey then tells Chuck and Sarah that they made three fatal mistakes. One, they didn't realize they were being followed for the past half hour. Two. They didn't bring enough firepower. And three, they didn't invite Casey to join them. Aww. Chuck, confused, asks Casey for his help. And Casey responds by saying that Stephen Bartowski served his country honorably and deserves to attend his daughter's wedding. Casey agrees to help, but on the condition that Chuck stays in the car. Chuck tries to hug Casey, but Casey shoots it down and Chuck promptly returns to the car. Stephen, watching all this from some kind of camera that's hidden somewhere. He's still in the bunker and he says, aces, Charles aces. Ted Rourke at this point appears in Steven's office and asks Steven how the new intersect is coming along. Steven says that he has one request that Rourke and Fulcrum leave his family alone. Rourke uh, shows disappointment in not being invited to Ellie's wedding. And Steven is surprised that he knows that Ellie's getting married, even though Rourke points out that he is quote in a major conglomerate of bad guys. Few details escape me. Rourke puts the Intersect 2.0 into a metal suitcase and storms off. As Chuck sits in the Nerd Herd mobile, a fleet of cars pour into the parking lot. I think they're all like silver PT Cruiser convertibles. 
They were all, yeah, I, I mean, I noticed that they were all the same car. I did not notice they were PT Cruisers. And if that is true, I am very upset that I didn't notice that. But yeah. <laughs> They're going to say, I am very upset that they were all PT Cruisers. I mean, I'm upset about that too. Um, but did, can PT Cruisers turn into convertibles? I think they have them. I think they exist. That's pretty, pretty cool. Sweet. I don't know. Maybe I'm impressed by PT I, Cruisers I miss now. PT Cruisers. You don't really see them anymore. I used to play like a game, like a computer game that it was like a racing game, but exclusively with PG Cruisers. <laughs> I think I played like Gran Turismo in one of my cars because it was like all the cars were so expensive in the game with like the this is for like the PlayStation 2. That, like yeah. that you'd have to play the game and like be really good at it to get money to afford actual racing cars. So for the first uh-huh. few levels, I was driving like a really shitty like Mazda convertible. And then a course, PT yeah. Cruiser was like the next car that I unlocked. Or I was like, sweet, so I have a, a, a fast car now. PT Cruiser. Um, anyhow, Casey sees all of these cars pouring in and he says, I didn't know Tron was so popular. <laughs> and then uh, Casey and Sarah head off into the woods, I guess, to find the secret enter uh, the secret entrance to the Fulcrum base. Right. So Casey and Sarah find their way into the bunker. Stephen notices them sneaking around, but his guards don't. So he asks if they'll spare him a cigar. The guard says, I thought you hated smoke, which again, this guard is really attentive and respectful. And he gives Stephen a cigar like this. This guy's pretty nice, I have to say. Unfortunately, sort of Sarah and Casey then jump out and beat the shit out of this guard and all the other guards. They toss Stephen a set of keys and free him from his chains. Sarah, Casey, and Stephen then return to the car, but Chuck is gone. He left a note that says he's going to stop work. Casey says, I'm going to kill him. But then Vincent steps out of the shadows and says, I'll take care of that. So I guess I did have him in my notes. That's he's, fine. Vincent is still, still here. here. He's, he's back. Yep. He's there. Meanwhile, Chuck sneaks into the production room where he finds the thing that is definitely the intersect and not the tesseract and is immediately confronted by Rourke. Then Vincent, who brings in Casey, Sarah, and Stephen. Orp says he's going to kill them all, whether or not the intersect works, but he'll let them live, along, live long enough to see him press the button. He does that, and Chuck tells everyone to shut their eyes. Stephen doesn't, though, and he tells Chuck to open his eyes as well, because the intersect he's made is all for Chuck. Reluctantly, Chuck opens his eyes. The intersect images play, etc., etc., and Chuck eventually faints. Stephen catches him. Meanwhile, Rourke is very excited to have seen all the images himself, and he tries to flash on some very morbid crime scene photos that he happens to have in a folder. I don't know why he has those, but he's trying to flash on them. <laughs> it doesn't work, but before he can become violent, the airstrike begins. I was kind of imagining this, like, I don't know military terminology, but I was kind of imagining that they were going to, like, have a big bomb that would just, like, wipe out the whole thing. But I guess they're going to have a bunch of little bombs mm. that wipe out convenient places. <laughs> um so the bomb first hits the screen and everyone scatters and Casey and Sarah bring Chuck, Stephen, and the Intersect out of the projection room amid more fiery explosions. Um, we do happen to see that Rourke is in a place that gets exploded. We don't actually see him die, which will be important later, but we see the playground area that he's in explodes. Against all odds, and possibly because they're the show's heroes, our heroes make it to the car just before the whole place explodes. In the car, Chuck wakes up and says he's feeling lighter. Stephen reveals that the new intersect was designed specifically and solely to remove the old intersect from Chuck's head. He says it's over, and Chuck is flabbergasted at this news. We cut to Castle, where Beckman commends Casey for his hard work and suggests that he may even be worthy of promoting to General. He thanks her, but says the real success of the mission is Sarah's. He explains that she only pretended to go AWOL and used Chuck as bait to lure out Fulcrum. 
Trek backs up this story even when Sarah tries to protest. Ekman says that the Intersect project is over, and Trek attempts to make a speech thanking her for the life-changing experience, but she signs off in the middle of it. He says, that was a little rude. My next note at this point is to say that Back of the Bible, Fable 2 is back. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot more ads for Fable 2. So we we missed them the past couple weeks when we didn't see them, but now they're back in full full force. There were several of them. So Fable 2. That's right. Proud spot. Go to your local Best Buy and pick up Fable 2 wherever it is available, <laughs> which is probably not Best Buy at this point, but maybe a secondhand video game store. Like GameStop? Maybe GameStop. Maybe GameStop, maybe like uh, and like a pop-up blockbuster. Like some kind of independent book, movie, DVD, video game store, secondhand store. I don't know. Fable 2. So Emmett tells Morgan he has to fire Jeff and Lester for causing, <laughs> for causing a power outage with illegal explosives that had consequences for what seemed like the entire city of Burbank, which I thought was pretty fair. They should be fired and maybe yeah, arrested. I was going to say, it's pretty generous on his part that he's not calling the cops to get them arrested. Yeah. Morgan is too loyal for this and he refuses. He goes out into the store to ensure that Big Mike will take care of his mother and promptly quits the Bymore to move to Hawaii with Anna. I don't know what it is with people and Hawaii on this show because that's where uh, Harry Tang also <laughs> went. Maybe they'll run into each other while they're there. Also, Morgan takes off his whole shirt during the scene and it was very upsetting and I said, Jesus, right out loud. Chuck finally shows up to work at this point for once <laughs> and he asks Morgan what's going on. Morgan says, for the first time ever, everything is fine. And then he walks out, which is like, these two claim to be the best of friends, but they never talk to each other. I feel like Morgan could have been less coy and been like, I'm moving to Hawaii, goodbye. But uh, he just leaves and Chuck has been used. I feel like the only times that they talk to each other are when Morgan is saying things that are weirdly parallel to what Chuck is experiencing. Yes, I think. And it's either that or it's Morgan saying, Chuck, I have a huge problem. And, and Chuck saying... Yeah, talk right now, yeah. buddy. <laughs> Those are the two times they That's talk. That's kind of how like, we talk. Also, Aaron's always like, I have a yeah, huge problem. Like, bye-bye. Um, Anna is also quitting. Like, she doesn't say that she's quitting, but she's moving to Hawaii with Morgan. So, like, she also has to leave her job. Maybe she's going to work remotely. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Emmett throws Morgan's headset on the ground, defeated. He could just fire everyone himself. He doesn't need Morgan to do that. Like, I understand he's, like, lost control of the situation, but, like, if he wants to continue mistreating Big Mike and wants to fire his employees, like, he can do that himself. Back at the Bartowskis, Ellie and Devin are late for their own rehearsal dinner. Ellie says that she suspected her dad would disappoint her, but she's surprised that Chuck did as well. Devin takes this time to actually be awesome and tell her that Chuck will be back because he loves her. Just then, Chuck walks in. Ellie asks where he's been, and Chuck says, getting your wedding present. Then Steven enters. Ellie is very touched by this development. Shortly thereafter, Chuck knocks on Casey's door and invites him to Ellie's rehearsal dinner, not as the asset, but as a friend. It's a sweet moment, although again, where does Chuck get off inviting random people to his family members' parties all the time? Like, that went so well the last time he did it, right? Casey shuts the door in Chuck's face, but then he opens it again in a jacket and holding like ten huge cigars. He politely excuses himself to warm up the Vic when Sarah enters in a stunning blue dress. I... Here's what I was wondering is like Sarah and Casey like are government employees and I guess like it makes sense that they have like the night off before they ship out to somewhere else but like it seems like they wouldn't just be like at their homes doing nothing ready to go to a party like it seems like they would be preparing for their next mission or like 
something. Like, they can just attend this event. Like, and Sarah, like, she just, she could just go. I don't know, it's weird. Aaron, you're being a real Beckman right now. I am. I'm sorry. You gotta chillax. Let them just be people, all right? They're not just government pawns. Chuck tells Sarah he feels like everything is finally real, and she says, it is real. They hold hands. And then we cut to another hand, this one badly burned, hitchhiking somewhere on a highway. Who is it? Well, Carl Pal Vincent. Just kidding. I don't know where he is. It's work. A truck stops, and work tells the driver he's headed to Burbank because he's got a wedding to go to. That's the end. Yay. It's a happy ending, but then there's a little bit of a twist at the end. A little bit of a Not twist. Er- Dun, dun, dun. Not everything is totally resolved. That is Chuck versus the Colonel. There it is. Getting set up for a big finale. Big season two finale. So exciting. So I'd like to move us into one of our new segments, but before I do that, I did want to point out something I noticed on the episode's Wikipedia and see what you thought about it. One reviewer, um, Alan Seppenwell, says that the frequent abuse inflicted on Vincent is akin to South Park's abuse of Teddy. <laughs> do you think that's what they were going for? Like, why Vincent always gets the crap kicked out of him? Or do you think that's just like, like, is this is this reviewer being more eagle-eyed than us? Or is that something you think they were actually trying to do? I, it's hard to say, because I don't think, like, when Vincent... Are all the, the instances of Vincent getting hit or like knocked unconscious they're not all comical necessarily you know like they're not hyperbolic yeah. or yeah i mean like because the first time he does the first time we see him he does get exploded like he is in the like orion like bombs the building that vincent is uh-huh. in and then vincent is in a body bag at one point so i guess because he took cyanide kill- and did the cyanide yeah thing. so like i i guess that is a motif but i don't know if it's exactly on the level of right Brady. Yeah, I don't know if it's a so, joke that he keeps dying or getting hit, but yeah. it's definitely real. maybe it is. I don't know. Oh. Maybe um, in your uh, bonus features, when we watch that, we'll have some insight into the character of Vincent. Oh, yes. Because he has to have a point for being here. Like, so maybe that's what they were trying to do. But moving on, um, I wanted to play our fun IMDb plot keywords game. Mm. So, Chris, I'm going to read you. This this episode has a few more than the last one. It has 21 plot keywords. Oh boy, okay. So I'm going to uh, give you a... I'm, I'm going to rapid fire read them and you tell me, is this relevant or not? And then I will vote on IMDb telling them whether or not it's relevant. Awesome. So, one, blackmail. Blackmail? <laughs> yep, blackmail. I think maybe because, like, work is saying, like, Stephen, I'm going to kill your family if you don't do this. Yeah, I I guess that's blackmail. Sure, right. yeah. Relevant. Kissing. Yes. Hitchhiking. Yeah. Man carrying a woman. <laughs> Man carrying a woman is a plot keyword? It's a plot keyword for this episode. Um, oh, so it's because Morgan carries Anna? Yep. I... <sighs> Relevant. Okay. Great. Airstrike? Yeah, relevant, yeah, yeah. yes. Okay, handcuffed to a radiator. Very specific, but very relevant. Explosion. Yes. Okay, here's a good one. Male bonding. <laughs> yeah, because of between Chuck and Casey, but also between Steven and the Fulcrum agent that he's friends with. Yes, exactly. Underground bunker. Yes. Father-son relationship. Yep. Male tied up. Yeah, Casey is tied up. Okay, here's the next one that leads directly into that foreplay. 
Uh, there is, yep, Sarah and Chuck's foreplay. That, yep. Cliffhanger? Absolutely. Parody? Parody. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Chuck usually has, yeah, because of the Godfather thing, and then I think Rourke's speech probably during the, the address at the drive-in is probably a parody of something, so yeah, that makes sense. Okay, Godfather impression. Yep. I'm going to go ahead and say, yep. Uh, jail? Jail. Mm, not really. I'm going to say no on that one. Okay. No. IMDb, take note. Ritual? Ritual. Uh, there's not much of the occult in this episode, so I'm going to say no. Contraband? Contraband. Also, probably not. Okay, we have Air Raid, which I'm just going to go ahead and say yeah, yes. Like we strike. also said yes to yeah. Air Strike. Escaping from bonds. Escaping from bonds? Like bail bonds? Yes. Or James Bond? Escaping from James Bond, yes. Um, General Dynamics F-16 Fighting Falcon. Finally, yes. That's what this whole episode was about. <laughs> All right, and that is the uh, 21 plot keywords listed on IMDb. I believe that... I believe that we can add our own. We can? I'm hitting... Yeah, if you sign in with IMDb, you can edit the page and add your own keywords. Oh. Keep that in mind. So someone added the specific kind of bomber plane that they used? I suppose that's what's going on, yeah. Interesting. Uh, moving on to Chuck, Mary Kill. One part of this episode we want to marry and one part of this episode that we want to kill. Um, Aaron, what would you want to marry this week? I would... Um, I really liked the instance with Casey being tied to the radiator and then pulling it out of the wall and then like having mm -hmm. it. I didn't think that he necessarily used it a ton in the fight, but there were kind of clever things of, like, he held it up in front of his face and bullets bounced off it. I think probably he hit somebody with it at one point. I thought that it was funny. Um, not, like, we've seen Casey break his thumbs to get out of handcuffs. We, we know that he's, like, hardcore in that way, but I thought it was, like, an extra level of humor that he literally just pulled the radiator out of the wall. And then I thought it added to it that he just had it, and he had to, like, work around it um and, and like it just kind of showed casey is kind of worthy of the title of Colonel. Mm -hmm. i like the it was a funny exchange too when casey shows up in the car with chuck while holding the radiator and chuck's mm -hmm. like you can't hurt me because you're like your hands are tied to a radiator and casey's like you don't mm -hmm. think i can kill you with my thumb or my elbow <laughs> and then chuck's like well you can't kill me with that radiator it's too tight in here for you to get the appropriate torque yeah i i like that line as well what about you? What would you marry? Um, so I kind of liked the use of the drive-in movie screen. Um, mm -hmm. I liked that Rourke delivered his evil address, his evil speech to all the fulcrum agents in the PT cruisers. Um, I thought it was kind of cool that we see kind of Rourke using his showmanship, similar to when he was unveiling the new like Rourke Industries uh, or Rourke Instruments operating system, yeah. that he's still kind of that same and guy. And you dig it. Yeah. Yeah, um, he still has like the big ego and wants to make everything theatrical. So I, I appreciated that. But I also liked how yeah. the movie screen kind of served as this symbol or something of like because Stephen notifies Chuck to go back to that spot with the message Tron 12 a.m. Mm. or 12 a.m. Tron. And yeah. Chuck immediately knows that it's his dad. And then they go to the movies and then Stephen made the intersect to basically a movie for Chuck. So it's kind mm. of, I liked how the movie motif, not some motif, but you know what I mean, 
kind of represented yeah. Chuck and Steven's relationship as well. Yeah, I think I think that's a good one. Thank you. Yeah, like Tron Tron is very important to them and it continues to be. I like how they keep bringing that up. Uh what would you kill? Um I guess I would just kill the whole dynamite in the fuse box thing. Cause it just <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty it dumb. seemed like a pretty unapologetic just bandage for a plot hole that they're like, uh, how did Chuck and Sarah get out of this? Be like, well, what if Jeff and yeah. Lester do something at the buy more? And like, well, what would they do to cut power? Like, what if they don't want self checkout registers to come in so they will cut out power temporarily because they'll still be able to move the registers in at some point. Mm-hmm. I was just like, this is dumb, but yeah, I am going to second that. Um, but I will, um, piggyback on top of less thought out plot points with I agree with you that Morgan's like Benny Hanna dream is pretty weird Mm -hmm. but I also think like if this is something that they knew that they were gonna do like so many things on Chuck seem like they thought of it the week before they wrote it Mm -hmm. like and it seems like this is something that they I would have liked so much better if they built up to it like I I know there's merit to like there being like a surprising like a character has a dream that you never knew about, but it's so absurd and there's, like, comedy in that. But I also think, like, Morgan wanting to live in Hawaii, like, Morgan wanting to be a Benihana chef, like, I feel like, like, even if it was a throwaway joke earlier in the season, like, Chuck was like, yeah, when Morgan was a kid, he dreamed, like, he always used to try to slice up food for me, or always talked about being a Benihana chef, and then Morgan was like, oh, God, yeah. Like, I feel like if they set this up at all, it would have been more effective, but it just felt like a detail that like they just included on the fly that then suddenly becomes important. And it just felt like it was like, yes, don't you know that Morgan? Oh, we, this was always his dream. Don't, didn't you know that? And we've mm. never heard of it before. And I feel like all of the characters, maybe Anna wouldn't know it, but I feel like a lot of the other characters would know that that was his dream. The only thing I have to add to that was that in Chuck versus the sizzling shrimp, we know that Morgan and Chuck are very into like Asian That's food. true. But yeah. that's not enough for it to be like ch- that. Morgan wants to be a sushi, a, a sushi. No, or a and then show. like when when Harry Tang moved to Hawaii, like I get that they maybe didn't know that they were going to do this a season ago because maybe they didn't know they were going to get renewed. But like I just feel like when another character moved to Hawaii, Morgan would have been like, "I've always wanted to live in Hawaii." Yeah. Like I wouldn't necessarily like remove that from the episode, but I just wish it had been set up like a little bit more than like just. He says it, and then suddenly it's the biggest thing in the world. I would have liked, like, even one episode ago, if there was some reference. They bring back Vincent. Why didn't they bring back Benihana? Very true. Uh, now we have the scooter scale on a uh, a sliding scale of zero to five corn dogs. How much we liked this episode, Aaron? How many corn dogs would you give season two, episode twenty one? I um, I feel like I. This is just the answer that I gravitate towards, but uh, I think I'm going to give it a four. Um, I thought that it was appropriately, like, intense, enjoyable. I thought I thought that they wrapped things up pretty well at the end, but I liked how it's like, the characters think that everything is going well, and Chuck has the intersect out of his head, and now all of these people are going to be together at the wedding, and like a lot of the really good episodes of Chuck, I feel like it sets up very well what the next episode is going to be. Um, I think there were, like, some issues, like, the the dynamite thing was just kind of, like, a weird solve to a, the main plot, so I wouldn't give it 
the highest score, but I thought it was a pretty good episode. So I'll like I'll say three point seven five four area. I had a good time watching. Okay, it. yeah, I'm kind of I'm similar. I give it a three point five. I didn't have okay. like any major faults with the episode. I just felt mm-hmm. like they had to cover so much in forty four minutes that they didn't really have as much yeah. time for like big stylistic choices or lots of mm-hmm. jokes or everything like that. I felt like it was a pretty serious episode. Um, yeah, I liked everything they did in it. I think it definitely has a satisfying resolution, albeit temporary at the end of mm-hmm. this episode. But it just it didn't have that wow factor for me this week. But I, yeah, I liked I it would, all. It was fine. It was good. And I was like, OK, yeah. this is clearly like they're setting stuff up for a big yeah. finale. But um, it just felt like when you even if you just like look at this episode, if you zoom out, you're like, what happens? Like Casey gets promoted. Casey hunts down Saren Chuck. Casey goes against Beckman's wishes and joins them again. But also Devin finds out that Chuck's a spy. Devin and Casey fight Um, like Morgan quits his job. So Chuck loses the intersect. Steven gets rescued. It's just like so much happens, but it's all good stuff. Um, Yeah, I think they did a good job of managing everything they needed to do to get to like the finale where everything can just like play out. Very true. Very true. So I have uh, one more thing that I wanted to uh, announce here at the end of the episode. Is it that you went to the Austin Film Festival? Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> um, so you took the words right out of my mouth. But I will add to that that uh, I went to the Austin Film Festival last week. <laughs> was that actually what you were going to say? Yeah, that was actually what I was going to say. Uh, you're insufferable. Do you want to say the name of the film that you worked on? My... <laughs> Uh, my film uh, that I worked on that I'm producing is going to be uh, 40 to 50 minutes, probably. And it is called The Brandon Tree. It takes place in Woo! Brandon Tree, New Hampshire. Yeah, filmed in New York, but takes place in New Hampshire. It's about two friends who uh, kind of meet up at the one year anniversary of their friend's death. They meet up at a place that they used to hang out as teenagers and they um, kind of reconnect a little bit and then they also uncover some some mysteries and some answers about their friend's untimely death when a a stranger appears and uh and they kind of rehash everything with him this is really interesting i asked chris before we recorded what the film was about and he did not tell me any of that well yeah because you weren't like pitch the movie to me that, I mean, yeah, I guess um, at the Austin Film Festival, I did not learn the skills of asking someone to pitch their own film to me. <sighs> okay, do you want to say the Austin Film Festival one more time, and then we'll wrap it up for this episode? Uh, no, I think I'm good. No, you're good? Okay. Yeah, well, okay. signing off, uh, we'll see you next week. My name is Chris Gillespie, reminding you that food is sexy. My name is Erin Arado, reminding you that I went to the Austin Film Festival last weekend. And if I can do that, then anything is possible. That's right. So uh, I'm going to go. I I can't spend any more time with Erin right now. We'll see you (laughs) next week for the season two finale. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to freemusicarchive.org and the artist Hadakoa for providing us with our theme song, Warm Up. Make sure to email us at gochuckyourselfpodcast at gmail.com and tweet at us at gochuckpodcast. Remember to like and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and write a review if that's something you need to do. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.